Welcome, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining us uh, today. We have an amazing uh, speaker. Uh, Jim Cook has had a long and illustrious career. He started his uh, kind of career as an early employee at Intuit, uh, was in the middle of the dot-com boom, helped start uh, Netflix, and I guess contributed to the worldwide reduction in productivity over the last 20 years. And, <laughs> and, and he's also, he was a CFO of Mozilla for a long time, you know, lots of other CFO, COO roles. He's now the CFO of uh, Orbital uh, Insights. Uh, I'm thrilled to have uh, Jim join us today and to share his wisdom and, and, and uh, lessons learned. So Jim, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thanks, Deja. Yeah, I'm super happy to be here. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, team. Awesome. Amazing. So let's just dive in. I know there's a lot yeah, uh, for us to talk about. So let me start first about, you know, uh, the, the career that you've had, right? So maybe I should start by asking you, you've been at some very impactful companies, right? So Intuit, Netflix, Mozilla, and what's more important, uh, important to me is that you were there early. You, you kind of picked a lot of these uh, uh, winners, which went on to be very impactful uh, uh, in the world. What's the secret? Like what lessons uh, did you learn about picking some of these impactful companies? I, I, I'm not sure there's a secret. Um, and, and I think the fact that I've been at those companies at those early stages just means I'm old. I've been in Silicon Valley 30 years. So I think as everybody gets to be as old as I am, um, maybe they get more lucky than good. Um, but just, you know, just, just a level set here. Um, I don't think there's a secret other than I've always picked companies based on people, based on culture and based on kind of, can I work with this, you know, are they really, really smart? Can I work with them? And I realized I did that in Intuit when we were 100 employees. I was really young. I was, what, what, what was I, 25 years old when I joined Intuit. So, you know, I, I learned a lot more about people and culture and how to pick companies over time. But I could feel it. You can feel it when you walk into a company. I don't know if the rest of you feel this, but I, you can feel an energy. You can almost feel a culture. And so pay attention to those instincts because those are pretty important. Can the people that interview you, do they have the same operating values as you, right? You would think it would be, oh, they have a great product. Oh, they're going to be super successful. They're making millions of dollars. I don't think that's right, right? And so did the same thing as one of the first e-commerce startups that we'll probably talk about. Um, not Netflix, Internet Shopping Network in 1996. Um, and then when I joined Netflix, it was because of my relationships with those people with Intuit, one of the first uh, one of my first six co-founders was um, a marketing manager at uh, Intuit. Um, and she said, you're the internet e-commerce expert that we know you need to come over here for and teach us how to do e-commerce in 1997. Again, old, that was 23 years ago. And we were just shipping DVDs, right? It's not the streaming company you own now. Mozilla, much of the same way, 18 people. Um, I joined because of the people. I joined because of the culture. Yes, they had a good product. Yes, you could see that like this could be amazing, but people make these companies amazing. They weren't amazing to start. So um, long-winded answer. That's great. No, I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the results speak for themselves. Now, uh, you, you, if I'm not mistaken, your first CFO role was at Internet Shopping Network, right? And, uh, and, and your time at Intuit, uh, how did that prepare you for that CFO role and what have you learned since about uh, you know, taking on these CFO roles and the difference between maybe uh, you know, being a VP of finance at the company or a head of finance versus yep. ultimately having that CFO role and title. 
how have what, what lessons have you learned about that? I, you know, it, it's a combination for me of, and I think it's, I think this is a pretty good axiom of just experience and leadership. So, and I'll take you through my progression into it just really quickly. I was one of the first, I was the first um, um, uh, head of financial planning. They didn't even have financial planning for 100 people. I was reporting directly to the CFO. I was really the first finance hire. They, we had six or eight other accountants, but I was the first finance hire. Um, and when you're in that position, you're in a position of, of not only learning a lot, because boy, did I learn a ton, but just taking a bunch of notes and being in the room because you were the numbers jockey or I was the numbers jockey behind, behind some of the decisions that had to be made. So I was lucky to be in the room. So try to be in the room, um, try to have enough influence and enough subject matter expertise, the experience so that you're learning something. And every once in a while you can give an insight or two. That's how I would start. Um, we eventually went public and we had to just figure it out as we went. No one knew how to go public in 90, 1993 as much as they do now. Um, uh, we, none of the management team at Intuit had ever done an M&A before when we acquired Chipsoft, nor did we know how to get in to, to, to go into business units. How, do, how are we going to split up into business units in 1994? So that's a lot of learning and a lot of being curious, asking questions, being okay with not having all the answers and just figuring out as you go, but, but speaking up, speaking up and saying, here's my opinion, not being afraid to do that. Um, and then you just learn, you learn from the best. You ask a lot of questions and eventually like everyone's career, if you ask enough questions and you're, and you're humble enough and you can provide insights where you can, people learn to rely on you and, um, and they know that your opinions are great. And, and after a while they turn to trust you. And again, it comes back to the relationship of if you're reliable, trustworthy, you have good experience. And then from there, you get you probably your first VP of finance job, which I did, you know, CFO job at Internet Shopping Network because of the experiences I had at Intuit. Now, I didn't have the track record for that. I didn't have the track record at, at Netflix. Um, you know, look, at Netflix, I had only six years into my career. But the track record I did have was I'd seen it before. I'd seen a company grow from 100 to 3,500 people at Intuit. I'd seen a company, I, 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 we had to build the first e-commerce infrastructures when no one knew what the word e-commerce meant. So by the time I got the phone call for Netflix, like this is a crazy idea that everybody else thought, shipping DVDs is never going to work. I could add something that wasn't like, and this is, what I, this is something we talked about today, Joe, is, is they didn't hire me to be a CFO of Netflix. They hired, you know, we, we were figuring this all out together. They needed, we needed a finance and operational expert and the two people that started the company were marketing people. We need someone who knows e-commerce. We need someone that knows operations. We need, so that's how this starts, right? It's expertise and eventually leadership. Got it. You, you talked about how you were the first FP&A person, essentially, right? And that's another uh, kind of dimension of how you get that CFO opportunity. A lot of CFOs, I've had the pleasure of kind of speaking with a lot of them, and they all have such diverse backgrounds, right? And some people come from an audit background. Some people come from an investment banking background. Some people have none of those. They, I think a few of the, uh, at least two of the ones I've spoken to in this series have an operations research background. So how do you think about that? Like, is there one background or another that makes for a better CFO or provides uh, more opportunities uh, further along uh, in your career? I don't, I, uh, so, so I've been a software and e-commerce uh, 
person most of my career. I'm not a semiconductor. This leads to the answer. I don't think there's one background, but I do think there is a pattern match against what is the business model of the company. If it's a semiconductor company or a manufacturing company, you're going to need a different financial leader than if it's a software company or now a software as a service company, SaaS company, right? You're going to need the experiences of those people that match the business model. Um, if you're highly capital in, in, intensive, you probably don't want to hire that are making lots of acquisitions. You probably don't want to hire a CFO that's been in software uh, their whole life that doesn't have any capital that doesn't manage the balance sheet. You want more of a, uh, you know, maybe the CPA accountants type with leadership skills. Um, and you also, the second pillar is stage of company. You have to be very careful about hiring your financial leader based on what stage that company's at. So the combination of business model and stage determines the fit. I don't think it's about role. The final thing is it, of where you've come from. The final thing is, can you be influential? Can you be a leader? Can you help be strategic? That cuts across both business model and stage, but you have to have different strategies at different stages. And so you have to be very careful about who you hire at what stage and for what business model, but they come from all walks, right? Got it. And so, you know, as you said, you've been doing this for a while, right? And you've had, uh, probably the opportunity to see huge, you know, wins and, and, and uh, losses on the other end too. So let's talk about some of the mistakes that you, that you made as, as a, maybe as a first time CFO, or maybe even as a more experienced CFO. Uh, is there a pattern to the kinds of mistakes that CFOs make, maybe especially first time ones who haven't done that job before, who are kind of taking that job for the first time? Yeah, there's, there's, we could spend a whole hour on my mistakes. Um, uh, and, and yes, there is a pattern to mistakes, in my opinion. Um, the goal is not to make the mistake more than three times in a row, right? The goal is, to, it, it, the goal is actually to actually learn from your mistakes and to, um, and to improve and not make those mistakes again. That's how I've always done the philosophy. But some of the mistakes I've made personally, um, early in my career, I thought the key to success was being incredibly precise, detailed. That's what CFOs, that's what VPs of finance are. They're 100% accurate. That's how you gain trust. Turns out that actually works against you. Um, and, and I know that may sound weird to a lot of people on this call, but um, being too precise is a bad thing. Perfection is the enemy of, of good, is a Steve Jobs famous quote, I think, something like that. Um, it does apply to CFOs because you can get too boxed in by being too precise because that you've made the assumption by being too precise that the budgets you created three months ago, six months ago, even a year ago that you're still tracking toward were accurate. Well, but if you're scaling a company and it's growing pretty fast, how can what your assumptions were 12 months ago still be accurate? And yet you're still trying to be precise and accurate against those budgets rather than being more agile. And this is what, what, what I think is the pattern is be less precise, but in the right range, be more range based as a, as a financial leader, give some mins minimums and maximums and expected values. All of a sudden that opens up a interesting, um, uh, safety, safe place for people who aren't as financially led to, to have a dialogue with you. 
when you're trying to be too precise, it's either one or zero, it's right or wrong. You don't leave a lot of room for dialogue. And if you don't leave a lot of room for dialogue or optionality, you don't leave a lot of room for developing a relationship. And you become thought of as more of a police person or a, or a or corporate, um, you know, yes, no person rather than a partner. And so it all kind of intermingles um, with this concept of being more range-based, being more scenario planning, what if, um, if this, then that. And if you think about some of the great vendors we all work with, even, even lawyers or, auditor, or maybe not auditors, <laughs> uh, lawyers or other professional vendors, um, they're not giving you the answer, they're giving you the options. And so present things more in options, scenarios, ranges, and you'll find, that's, you'll find it a lot better off, I think. Got it, that's great. So let's uh, shift uh, you know, track a little bit and, and talk about um, you know, lessons learned around mentorship, management, and building teams and things like that, right? And so let's start with mentors. Like, how important were mentors to you in your career and your success and uh you know let, let's start there oh man super important like i unpack the word mentor as coach or teacher and if you unpack the word of mentor as coach or teacher and you're the student then that applies to when you are in you know middle school high school or even in business so I think of less of being a mentor and more of, am I the student now or am I the teacher now or am I the coach now? When I think about it in those terms, I've been constantly, you know, I, I think some of the most successful people are just constant students and learners of whatever game they're playing. And this just happens to be the game of business. What can I learn about this? Who could I learn it from? And being willing and vulnerable to ask, to, to specifically ask, and it's really hard to do. Um, uh, when you're younger is to, is, is to open up and say, I don't know this. I want to learn this from you. Here's what's interesting about Silicon Valley, which I've spent most of my career in, and, and I've just only heard anecdotally, it doesn't really work this way in the rest of the world. What's interesting is that it's one of the few places in the world I've heard, and I'm just lucky to be here, that, that those people who have the experience are willing to give you the answers and spend time with you to get back only if they're asked. This is not a secret sauce society. This is, let's all share in our knowledge and let's all get better in this culture of cult Silicon Valley, which is really interesting to me. And it's why I just loved it here. Um, because if you ask, people will help you. And your biggest mistake is probably, going back to your mistakes, is not asking and being vulnerable early enough to say you don't know something. Because the only way you're gonna learn something is to admit you don't know something, ask people that do, back to the mentor, and believe it or not, they'll be glad to help you. It's, and, and it's just so powerful to build your network that way. And, and was there a method to how you found those mentors? Did you seek them out or did you run into them and just got lucky? Or how, when you think about the impactful mentors that you've had, uh, you know, how should people approach it? Is there a Boy, you know, you're plan that they now, can You're upon? asking me now 30 years later, I, I can tell you specifically, I did not um, seek out mentors. Like it wasn't on my checklist of I need a mentor. Um, certainly not. It was so, so maybe that's lucky. Maybe it's instinct. Maybe it's just enjoying being around people that know more than I do and knowing I'm learning from that. Whatever it was, I enjoyed being around really, really smart people who knew more than I did until I got to a point where I knew a lot and I was approaching the point like most people in their learning cycles that, wow, I am, I, 
I can almost finish that person's sentence. And then you start getting this confidence that you've spent enough time around this person or around this, these set of mentors or this mentor that I could answer that question the same way. And then you get old enough to say, I should probably start teaching this stuff. And so it's that cycle of, you know, learning, doing it, um, answering the question in your mind and not verbally because you're too still a little bit afraid to, to say it in that big room people and then getting more confident to say, well, I know that's the right answer. I'm going to say it. And then eventually you're being sought out to be that mentor. It's a really interesting cycle. So speaking of being a mentor, right? So I'm assuming you've seen people come up behind you, people who work for you, who've gone on to take CFO roles and things like that. But what are some of those common patterns you've seen in, in, in the more successful people compared to the ones who probably didn't end up becoming uh, those CFOs? Um, being curious, being constantly curious, being passionate about, about whatever you're passionate about. Hopefully it's in your subject matter expertise. Um, being humble enough to say that you don't know and, and to be vulnerable enough to say, help me. Um, those are the things that drive success. I mean, I mean, it's not the textbook you know, this person was anointed a leader and everybody just followed them. It's just, it's just not my experience how this works. How this works is just being curious, passionate, humble, hungry. You know, the, the, the Pat Lencioni book, the ideal team player, I love it. Hungry, humble, and smart. Those are all accurate. Um, that's what I see in the, as the pattern matching a success across, across most of um, uh, successful people that, that, that I've met and know. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, what I want to ask you next is about building teams and, and, yeah. and uh, you know, managing teams and being a good manager. And I should point out to everybody that, uh, you know, Jim had a very good observation when I asked him, hey, how did you learn how to be a good manager? He pointed out that he thinks of it more as leadership than management, which I, I thought was amazing. Now, I'd love to hear, Jim, your thoughts on, did that come naturally to you, right? And, and, uh, do you feel like, you know, just building teams, leading people, is that a skill that can be acquired? Were you just good at, because of course you don't get to become a CFO and not have to do that. A big part of the job is to do that. Right. Yeah, and, I remember when you uh, and I so, had a discussion. Yeah. You and I, you and I had a uh, kind of a, a first talk getting to know each other and you asked me this question. So I'm glad you're asking it again. Um, and I thought about that and it really made me think about it because I hadn't thought about it. And I, I I'm going to have to say, Yes to both. I think yes, it came naturally. But yes, it's it's a lot more hard work. So let me let me pack both those. Um, yes, it probably came naturally just because I'm a team based player and I love sports. So I've been on sports teams ever since I've been six years old, playing soccer and baseball, and I just love the competition of sport. And when you're on a team. Um, and, and you have this passion of just getting better. Uh, you, you, you tend to, everyone tries to make each other better. Um, and, and sometimes people anoint you that leader and say, man, you should be captain this year. You should be captain this year. And so I, I was named captain, right, of the team just because of the passion, right? I just want everybody to be better. And so I think, I think naturally it kind of, there's the, but you don't have to be natural at it. Like, of the success factor of natural versus did you learn it? I'd say it's 
25% or less being natural at it because it's not required and 75% of, of, um, of leadership is learning it. Because even if you're natural at it, which I may have been, if I'm honest, um, I've learned so much more just by staying curious and reading the books and trying things. Let's try this leadership technique. Oh, that's a technique I haven't thought about. I can communicate it this way. And so it's just trying these clothes on about different techniques and seeing what lands for your style. And there is no one style, right? As we probably know, it's this works for me, this doesn't work for me. This kind of like, let me try this. Oh, that's an interesting technique. Let me try, it's just experimentation. Leadership is experimentation with a good set of best practices that, and, and to figure out what works for you to your natural abilities. Because everyone has different natural abilities. You don't have to be an extrovert to be a leader. Great leaders are introverts as well and they play on those natural abilities. But leadership is a methodology. It's a way of, you know, combining strategy and structure and execution in any way that you combine it and communicating it well. Whether it's an introvert might do that a little bit more with writing or documentation. We've seen some great leaders who are just mostly right. We've seen great leaders that are mostly speakers, right? Um, because they enjoy speaking, but, but leadership comes in many varieties and you learn it. You don't, I don't care if it came naturally, you're not, that's, that's not going to get you where you need to be as a leader. You're going to have to work hard at it, really hard at it and always learn about it. That's great. Now that, that uh, makes a lot of sense. Now moving on a little bit about uh, the role of finance, team, right? And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, there is this maybe, stereotype of finance uh, teams and accounting teams being the people who say no, right? And, and uh, how, how do you, what have you learned about building trust with the rest of the organization? And, and I actually saw a question come through. Uh, Alicia asked, how do you cultivate that positive relationship with the CEO, COO, and become their ally rather than you know, being seen as a barrier, right? The people who say no, who are putting controls in place and putting up uh, you know, uh, controls that slow the team down, the company down. Uh, what, what lessons have you learned about how finance teams are seen within a company, how they're kind of positioned and how they become allies and kind of uh, partners uh, for the rest of the business, right? Yeah, so I've, I've you know, in my 30 years of, 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 of learning all this, I've probably learned this in only the last, 10 to 15 years. Um, and I, I'm now talking a lot about it. And it, it's, it, it, especially when it comes to CFOs, because people do think, as you say, of CFOs is different, different, right? These are the command and control people. These are the people that say yes or no, and mostly no, and you have to convince them. I fundamentally now believe that that is the complete wrong approach to being a good finance person, being a good leader, but, but, for any, for any, for any uh, role. And if you actually step back and say, what makes a great chief marketing officer? What makes a great chief information officer or even CEO? You're never, you, you, re you won't get the answer of it's because they're command and control. What's, what's the answer you get most often than not relationships. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I can't have a relationship with my CFO. And it's like, no, there's ways of doing that. Um, and the ways to do that is to turn your complete thinking of being command and control on its head and starting with relationships first and starting with, how can I help you? 
how can I better partner with you, other leader of the organization? Here's the information I have. Can you share with me the information you have? How can we make a decision together? It's introducing this more team-based mentality. Let's take a risk together as leaders instead of you're going to ask me whether you, you approve this or not, Jim. Do you approve it? Because you know, I'm really nervous about you approving this. That's not a great place uh, to actually build anything or create teams. If you want a seat at the table as a financial leader, you're going you're gonna to need to be uncomfortable with, with starting with relationships first and not being command and control. Because if you're going to influence people strategically and you're going to make an impact with the knowledge that you have, you're going to have to be willing to be wrong. You're going to have to be willing to debate. And it's not a yes, no thing. And in order to do that, you said it, Dejo, it's about trust. The way you build trust is by giving trust. Well, wow, that sounds weird. How can a CFO give trust? Like, well, like if you really step back and think about it for the people that are on this call, which are mostly probably finance people, we give trust all the time with things called signature authority. I'll let you, I'll let you, I'll give you enough trust up to this level. And after this level, I'll give you enough trust. Oh, that's interesting. Once I started thinking about that, we do give trust. We just don't call it that. Well, can I give this person more trust? Can I give this more person more authority? Why would I give this person more authority? Oh, because this person has proven that, that they, can, they can handle the authority. They make better decisions. Did I really add value saying yes to this? Or did this person already make the right decision and I'm just rubber stamping it? Oh, I better give that person more authority. Now, am I giving authority or am I giving trust? However, whatever words you want to use, building that relationship like you go, you do it, I trust you, even and especially... Um, not expecting those people to be perfect either, expecting those people to make mistakes and then help guide them through their mistakes so that they get better and you get better. You cannot lead with, you have to be perfect or I'm gonna come down on you. That does not work in relationships. You have to lead with, I expect you to make mistakes just as long as you don't make more than two out of 10 of them. Out of eight, 10 decisions you make, you better be shooting 80%. And on the two, I'm going to be, we're, we're all going to like celebrate those 80%, but the other two we're going to talk about so we don't make them again. Now you've got a zone of safety. Now you've got this range-based thing that I started with, which is what I, I've called this chalking the field in the past. And back to the sports metaphor, when you chalk the field, you're, you're clearly denoting out of bounds in a very large playing field. You're clearly denoting with other chalk on the field what makes a first down or which way to run the bases or whatever in soccer, it's like uh, what offsides is right now. No, that's not right. In hockey, it's offsides. In soccer, I played all my life. It's where the people are on the field, but you get the point where the penalty box is, right? Um, there's a lot of room to play, but clearly denoting what the rules are, how you win, how you lose and holding people accountable. That's what you should be doing as CFO and then giving people the trust and the ability to play within those rules in that field. People start being, oh, this is great. I don't hear CFOs talking this way, but I would encourage people to think about it that way. If you give trust, you will get trust back. And if you get trust back, you build a relationship. If you build a relationship, you can now influence people with all the, all the interesting insights that you have that you haven't been able to share because people don't want to hear you. They, they, they fear you. They don't ask for you. Fear-based relationships aren't great. Absolutely. Now, 
Speaking of continuing uh, in that vein of the role of finance, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the, you know, we've heard all these stories in say the last, you know, two, three years, um, on corporate governance issues, Theranos, WeWork, you've know, heard all these horror stories. And what do you think is a finance leader's role when it comes to good uh, corporate governance uh, and, and uh, how should they be maybe being the steward in, in these companies or not? And obviously in some of these companies, uh, there were uh, major issues and none of us know the details of what happened specifically in those companies. But what are your thoughts on the role of a CFO and, and a finance leader in making sure that the company is operating at, you know, um, at the, the standard that uh, maybe everybody expects, right? Yeah. Um, so a short answer is it's absolutely table stakes. And by table stakes, it's an absolute requirement. Um, I'll fall back on what I just said about chalking the field. But before I repeat that, I'm just going to say one of the great values that, that, that we learned at Intuit that Bill Campbell brought to the table was integrity without compromise. I still remember it. It was one of his 14 values. If you're going to say these are the rules, this is out of bounds, this is inbounds. I trust you to play within these rules, but if you step out of bounds or you do a penalty against the rules, we're going to throw the flag or, and we're going to turn the ball over. Like, no, you cannot compromise. And what I'm finding on what, what you're noting on uh, some of these companies, the WeWorks of the world is it's kind of easy to kind of look the other way when things are going great and to compromise your integrity on governance that you know is wrong. You cannot do it. It will come back and bite you eventually. So integrity without compromise, unfortunately, just call the rule the way the rule is designed, call the out of bounds and say, sorry, I just got to call out of bounds. I got to call the foul. People actually respect that. They respect when you're fair and they really don't respect it because they know you're looking the other way. You actually ruin your credibility. You ruin your ability to lead even though you think you're making it easier for the company to succeed, you're actually doing the opposite by not holding people accountable. So you just really have to understand that by not holding people accountable to the rules that everyone has agreed to, you're undermining yourself and everyone and the company, and it will come back and bite you. It, it always does, whether it's Enron, whether it's WeWork, whether it's others, it will get exposed eventually. And you don't want to be in that seat when it does. And you want to be in the seat and say, that's, that's a flag. Sorry, I'm just going to call it. It's not me. We agreed to these rules, right? You can't argue that you held the guy. You can't argue that you tripped him. You did. That's your penalty. Sorry. Makes sense. Integrity without compromise. That, that's amazing. So I, I want to uh, spend some time talking about the future, right? So I think you have enough pattern matching uh, you know, that you've been able to do over the last 30 years that uh, I'd love to hear your insights on what do you think uh, is going to happen in the future for the finance uh, role. Uh, but I, before I jump into that, I want to remind everybody, uh, you know, as soon as uh, this part is over, I'd love to kind of open up, uh, uh, you know, just time for questions. And if you have any, there's a Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom window. So please ask your questions there. So Jim, coming back to uh, the future, like how do you think the role of the CFO has changed over the last, 30 years, right? Has, has, has anything changed at all since oh, yeah. know, uh, when you were oh, into yeah. it uh, all the way to now? 
Yeah, those of us are as old as I am, which aren't many people on the call. It, it's changed dramatically. It's changed a lot. And in fact, I, I'm a big historian, so I'll just try to be quick on this because I don't want to get to questions, but I do have a lot to say on this. And I'm just, I, I love thinking about the future. No, we, we, we have all the time, so feel, feel free to take all the time. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I did write down some notes on this because this was started just flowing out of me. But if you really think about how finance has changed, I'm really going to take you back to the 1970s. I mean, I was barely born in the 1970s, but when I got into business, people were talking about the 70s, and at least I had it around people talk. 1970s, we had IBM mainframe computers as our accounting system. In the 1980s was the first personal finance, mid-80s personal finance software package. Um, and by 1985 is the first time you started hearing about client server computing as the next step from mainframe computing. But that took 15 years. And then we went from client server in the mid 80s to the mid 90s, we had this thing called the internet. And, and Larry Ellison stands up and says the network is the computer. What the heck is he talking about? Right? Well, he's talking about the internet. And yet we didn't even know what the cloud was at that point. Um, but by 2015, 15 years after, you know, the network is the computer mantra in 2000, everyone has pretty much embraced the cloud as the way data should be working. So I'm framing this all in terms of data and we as finance people live in data. How do we get, and what's happening is that the data is going further and further and further to the edge. You talk about IT and networking, it's going further and further and further to the edge. It used to be all centralized. So what's changed is that the financial leaders that are still stuck in centralizing everything are going to be dinosaurs. You have to embrace the fact that data is moving faster and faster and faster to the edge of computing and you have to go there with it. What does that mean? That means this whole concept of, and it's important, right? But this whole concept of having a general ledger and a chart of accounts, this guy, you know, the, the war of, of, of like a, um, this concept of one ring to rule them all, uh, it doesn't, you know, called an ERP system. They're important, but they're not the driver anymore. The drivers are the subsystems. The specialized subsystems where the decisions and the interactions are made every day with customers, where the decisions, you know, let's talk about Salesforce. Let's even talk about Airbase. Like there are, there are specialized subsystems that are driving the activity and the value and the data, that data needs to actually flow back um, into a central repository that may not be the ERP, but it's more of a decision-making dashboard. Accounting and finance systems were set up in the early days, like we've gone from quarterly reporting to monthly reporting in my career to let's see if we can close the books in, in negative days. How do you do that? You start things earlier. Where are we now, 30 years later? We're down to dashboards of screens all around the company where the daily metrics are flowing in. We're down to daily and weekly metrics. Well, if we're down to daily and weekly metrics and dashboards where we're making decisions, oh, holy crap, why did that, why, why did our call volume drop off? Why did our order volume drop off? Let's react to a daily or weekly number. That's not accounting. Accounting and finances, let's plan for it. Let's do a budget versus actual. 
what are this all in service of? What, what is accounting in general? It's, it's, if we step back and realize what where our purpose is, it's to make better decisions. So we can still make better decisions, but we can't do it the old way of collecting month old numbers, quarter old numbers, and trying to do budget versus actual variance analysis. It's just too old. You have to then take the same concept of being at the intersection of data. You're still at the intersection of data as a leader, financial leader, your unique intersection, you get to see marketing subsystem. You get to see IT subsystem. You get to see um, whether this, this airbase subsystem, and you can then work on connecting those and then providing your unique insights, but not from an ERP out from a subsystem in, if that makes sense. Yep. We can talk about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I think that and now that idea of finance and accounting is being just an enabler of making good decisions. I think it's, it's, that's just an uh, amazing insight. I want to steal that, right? I'm going to, I'm going to use that, uh, you know, because I think it does apply to uh, what we do for sure. And, and so, but, but when you look at maybe uh, uh, that evolution that has happened, and if you look at the next five years, 10 years, and a whole bunch of people who are listening are probably going to be up for those kinds of CFO roles over the, those next five years, 10 years, right? And how do you think that translates to skills? How have maybe you had to upgrade your skills over the last 30 years as you have uh, progressively seen these changes happen uh, in the role of the CFO? And how do you think uh, th that will change even further yeah. over the next 10 years? Any, so, any look yeah. around the corner kind of insight uh, oh, for, hey, go, go focus on building these skills and, and stuff like that? You know, 100%. So in the early days, the skills were required for the systems that were in place. And the systems were in place were create good budgets, track the actuals accurately, consistently, and timely, and do variance analysis. Because that's the only information we had to make decisions at. So you had to have a skill set in that. Today, you have to have a skill set of the data is coming in mostly automatically. And now you have to then use your insights and expertise to react to the data and help provide insights of what it means. So you're no longer producing the data in the old skill set. You're reacting to data. Data is more real time. It's in the cloud, the speed of business. You know, it, the analogy I make is driving a car, something we do every day, right? Most of us drive a car. And yet in the old days, a car was really just four wheels with, with, with hardly any technology in it. It has steering, it's that same steering wheel, same accelerator, same brake, um, basic components. Today's car is basically a computer on wheels. Today's car has so many chips in it, it's unbelievable. All the way up to the Tesla, right? It's hey, still I, I, I spent six years building a company on that thesis. This, that was my previous company and you're absolutely right. And so we still drive that car by the dashboard. We still look at the dashboard and how fast we're going. And we still understand how the accelerator and brake works. Those are critical foundational elements that, and we understand how those things intersect and the best drivers are the ones that understand those key systems. But underneath those systems, I would highly encourage people to understand what it means when the check engine light comes on and how that might input, you know, the check engine light is kind of the finance of the future. We're going to be saying, oh, if we're seeing these warning signs, the data is coming in automatically and the systems are reacting, we better make a different decision because it's going to change how fast we can go running out of gas on the dashboard or whatever. I hope that's making sense um, in terms of how you operate. So you have to be closer and closer and closer to the edge, which means you have to establish relationships with your C CIO, CTO more than ever before. You have to establish relationships with your CMO, 
to understand funnel metrics and how, how much money we're going to spend to get these leads, what it means. You're no longer controlling that. You're reacting to that. You're understanding why they've been making decisions. You have to partner with them. In order to partner with them, you say, teach me how you're running your business as you've modernized marketing or have used modernized uh, networking or if you've modernized um, sales. Um, teach me that as a CFO and then I'll teach you what I can do with the data and what I can feed it back to you. Now you're talking a partnership of give and take and now you become incredibly influential because you do sit at that unique intersection of talking with the marketing person, talking with the network, you know, CTO, talking with the VP of engineering, talking with the VP of ops, and you're getting different ways of managing the business. And you're one of the few people that sits there and can kind of draw insights and analytics around what you're seeing with various best practices, but you're no longer required to deliver those best practices. You're required to, to analyze them and provide your own insights. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. So, I want to make sure we have at least 15 minutes, Jim. There's a whole bunch of questions, uh, you know, really good ones that I want to make sure we uh, have the chance to talk about. Let me jump right in, right? So let me start by, say, uh, Dan had a question about uh, leadership and when you're leading a team, you know, how do you think about giving your team members a seat at the table, right? And then how do you uh, ensure that they're partnering with the respective functions uh, more effectively? And, and uh, you know, that's what I'm taking away uh, from the question and how have you thought about the bringing up team members and giving them more of a voice in the seat it's a great question um this comes back to the leadership principle of being on a team and so i figured out i just i, I love this product-based approach to everything probably about 10 years ago i figured out how to communicate this differently i believe that everyone can be the ceo of their own product everyone should own something and if you're there, even if you're an accounts payable clerk um, or an accounts receivable administrator or whoever, whatever your role is, you have, you're hired there for a reason. I want to hear what your best practices are. What is your product? Who is your customer of that product? If it's accounts receivable or accounts payable, how do they use it? How can you make that product better for your customer? And when you start asking that as a leader of people that are like, what are you talking about? I'm just doing accounts payable. No, no, no. You are the first toucher of data that if you get it wrong, let me show you where it goes in the, like, if you code this wrong, here's what happens at the end. Oh, I never realized that opening people's eyes, they own the data and no one's going to double check them. And I'm going to hold you accountable to not only collecting this data more efficiently, but delivering it more efficiently. How can you be innovative? Even at AP or AR really gets people to understand how to think like a leader and to speak up. And if you can do that at all levels of the company, that's where, that's, that's so awesome. That's what I enjoy doing. Great. So another timely question, I think Brian is asking about scenario planning, right? Especially in this current environment where things are changing so quickly. There are so many variables and you just can't accurately model all of it, right? And what's your advice on tiering executives and, and uh, the CEO on, on what really to focus on? Yeah, so you're never going to be able to model change accurately. That's a fool's game. But what you can do is say, you can get everyone to agree on, on path making decisions. In other words, driving the car again, 
when we get down to a quarter tank of gas, we better start monitoring how many miles we have left at the gas station. That's a critical inflection point where we have to start asking different questions. That's a form of scenario planning, right? If then, right? If then, come up with a set of scenarios that if this happens, then let's predict what our response will be to that. Let's not wait for that response. Let's not wait for it to happen and then try to figure it out as we go. Let's be strategic and figure out, well, if the economy gets worse or customers stop paying us, oh, that's never gonna happen and just put your head in the sand. Let's, let's play, let's go there. What would we do if that did happen? Come up with your action plan now. You may as well instant response plan it now. Look, this is what great security people do. This is great security and cybersecurity has a whole set of, we've learned these lessons before. They have a whole set of incident response protocols of if then, if someone hacks our system, this is step one, this is step two, this is step three, this is step four, we communicate it. And the companies that don't have those systems are just skewered and skewered. And actually the companies that get broken into get lauded, get, get highlighted for, look at how they responded. Look how Twitter responded so well, even when their top celebrities are hacked, it's like, it's a bummer they were hacked, but, but the response was awesome. You want that same sort of thing with your scenario planning. You can't predict it, but you can predict your response to it. And if you can do that, then you can have a set of scenarios that range from really, really bad to expected value to really, really great. And even start having conversations around, hey, no one thinks we're coming back anytime soon, but what if we did? What if, what, what if we had a vaccine overnight? Wouldn't we operate differently? Let's figure that one out now too. We start bringing people, you know, and, and let's just have these playing cards that we can come out and, and, and play um, when these scenarios happen. It's not about having the right answer. It's about having a point of view and having a response to that point of view. And if you hit those milestones, um, you better you better pull out that the, the 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 play card, the play call. You've got a bunch of plays called in case back to sports methodology, sports metaphor. If the defense says this, we're likely to change our game plan and do that. If our offense is working, we should probably change our game plan and start keep doing more of that and less of that. That's all scenario planning. Trying to think that yep. you're going to call it accurately is a fool's game, but scenario planning is great. Awesome. So Dennis had a great uh, question about scaling a finance uh, team, right? And so as a team uh, scales from startup, you know, maybe all the way to uh, an IPO at different stages, uh, what have you learned about the order in which you hire roles? And I know I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I'm assuming that's okay. what uh, Dennis is, is getting at. But how do you build out that team and then put different functions in people? Uh, and in what order have you learned is, is the right uh, way to do it. Yeah. So, so the way I've done it and the way I've learned it is um, you map it as close as you can to the activities. Like if you're getting a hundred invoices a month, you need one AP clerk, right? If you're getting 500 invoices a month, you probably need two. It's that kind of, what are the activities? What are the underlying activities I need to produce my, uh, you know, on, on the right time frame that, that I'm comfortable with of processing even stuff like AP, but you can do that for every function in the company. And if you can have some metrics around what the activity is around, then you can accurately predict how many people you need. By definition, if you're getting that activity, then the company's successful, you can afford to hire more people. So the more you can 
tie activities to actually needs with metrics, do that. Um, and the second part of the uh, my answer, I forgot, but uh, it was, uh, um, oh, no, I didn't. It's about um, asking your customer what they need. And by customer, I mean your internal customer. How can we support you better? And how much does that cost to support you better? Is that a system we should buy? Will that make us faster? Does that have the right does that have the right ROI if we did that? Oh my gosh, we could save two headcount if we had an airbase type system in our, I don't mean to pitch you guys, I'm sure I do. Um, but if we had an airbase system in our thing, um, you know, um, we could save two headcount. That's how a lot of decisions are made. So let's talk about that. Well, how does that happen, right? That's a good decision. That's how you scale. Sometimes you don't scale with heads, That's you great. scale with systems. Most times you Makes scale sense. Yeah, sorry. So another uh, another interesting question around you know what if you've been you know, stuck in at the controller level for about ten years, right? And then how would you debug that situation? And what suggestions can you offer uh, for you know, moving up in that ladder and, and getting that first opportunity uh, as a CFO? I would have that person look at um, so if they're feeling stuck have them write down in bullet points why they're feeling stuck. What is their definition of stuck? What is it they, that, that, um, that their customers are telling them that they need that they're not delivering on? There's something underneath this feeling of stuck that you can then identify, oh, I need to be producing more insights and I need to be more forward looking. I guess I've been a little bit too backward looking. Back, you know, information that's accurate and timely is, is table stakes and I'm closing the books every month. Why, why aren't, why aren't I progressing? It's like, well, what, what are you doing with those answers? And are you analyzing enough? Are you comfortable that now that I see patterns in historical data, time to start working on predicting the future. If you've seen enough and you, and are you curious enough now to predict the future? Are you comfortable enough now predicting the future? Because predicting the future is just as important as documenting the past. And if you don't have both, you really can't get out of your stuck. I'd start there. Got it. Another question. Brian uh, is asking about KPIs. Right? As companies are small but scaling, how do you tie KPIs all the way down to an individual goal and maybe even departments in the middle? Like, What are some lessons learned around the right way to structure and the OKRs and all these different systems? Again, I'm paraphrasing uh, the question, but uh, what have you learned about the planning process and KPIs and tying them all the way down to individuals? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, OKRs, as a reminder, have, it came from John Doerr in 2009, 2010. They've only been around for about 10 years. John Doerr and Google is kind of the first history here. Um, KPIs short, followed shortly thereafter because they are key performance indicators of what our objectives are. The concepts have been around forever. It's just different language. So let's separate the language from the concept. The concept is, what I've learned is almost predominantly, there are too many OKRs in a company. And there are infinitely more KPIs that don't matter. You have to be really, really good at what really, what's interesting to track. Because when you take OKRs and KPIs down to individual level, everyone wants to be on the piece of paper Everyone wants to say that their role is important, but that's, and it is, but it's not as important to keep like, 
we need to focus on these three things for this next quarter or this next six months. Your area of expertise may or may not be on that, on that objective for those next three or six months, but it may be when it comes time to IPO, maybe the company needs to focus on sales predominantly right now or engineering platform hardening right now. Eventually they'll get to finance and they'll have to focus on going public. You'll have your time in the sun, but not everybody needs to be an objective and not everything needs to be a KPI. What decisions do we need to make from the strategy on down that we can really, really condense and get the whole company focused around? Keep chopping, keep chopping, keep making it simpler and simpler. There's too many OKRs and too many KPIs that don't matter for right now. They will matter someday, but they don't matter for right now. It's a real hard concept. Keep it simple. Great. So here's another question on, on uh, careers and career paths. Uh, I think Michael asked, uh, at least in his experience, a lot of CFOs come from the corporate finance path. And uh, if you are from the accounting CPA path, uh, do you think getting an MBA is a good way to bridge that gap? And, and what are your thoughts on uh, finance people from an accounting CPA path getting an MBA to improve their chances of uh, um, you know, landing a CFO role? I'm going to answer two ways. An MBA is just a euphemism for learning more. So you're going to learn the same concepts, whether you get an MBA or a CPA, like, look, look, there's a ton of financial leaders that don't have a CPA necessary, really, really helpful, but it's not required. There's a ton of financial leaders, including me who don't have an MBA. I don't have a CPA. Why have I been successful? For, 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 would it have helped me? I would have gotten there faster probably uh, with an MBA or C maybe not, I don't know. Um, the answer is, are you learning enough? The same stuff that you'd be learning as an MBA, are you learning it in a company? Are you surrounding yourself with the right questions? Going back to finding the right people to teach you what you need to know. Um, these are all business concepts. And a lot of what you learn in MBA is how to deal with people, uh, how to be a better communicator. Um, we think, I mean, the thought is you learn about uh, how to do spreadsheets and that's part of it, but that's not what you're really learning. You're learning how to develop deeper relationships and networks and how to lead. That's what you're learning with MBA. You don't have to learn that through school, you can, um, but learning that is required. Learning how to do that, whether it's MBA or do it on your own or getting mentors, that's required, but you have to have that skill set. Awesome. So a couple of people have asked uh, uh, a question about the books that you have found influential. You mentioned uh, you know, the Lencioni uh, book, but are there any other books that you have found influential in your journey that has kind of made an impact on you and in terms of management, leadership, or maybe even just outright skills, right? Um, yeah, there's a ton of books. and There, there are a lot of business books. Um, I'm not going to rattle them off um, because there's just too many. Um, Top three. But just be a voracious reader, right? Anything from, I just love Pat Lencioni. So, you know, his, his famous book was The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Um, and that's just his writing style is great. Uh, Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm, you can learn a lot from. It seems so almost like academic, but it's not once you really start leaning down into like what that means. Um, any real book on leadership, I just devour because just hearing how other people approach leadership, um, whether it's, you know, uh, Colin Powell or others, um, 
uh, you can learn something for everybody. I, I take the I take I take the path that I'm going to learn at least one thing from any event I attend or any book I read. If I learn just one thing, it's worth the price of admission. Hallelujah! If I learn three things, and if I learn ten things, that's great. Um, and you'll know once you start reading and attending some of these events. But you'll, you'll learn, learn at least one thing. Just be a learner. Awesome. I guess that's the theme is uh, passion and, and the willingness to learn and uh, never stopping. Right. And Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, we are almost out of time and, and uh, yeah, so unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was a fantastic conversation and I'm uh, sure everyone enjoyed it a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm assuming you're on LinkedIn. Uh, can people find you there, connect with you yeah. and, and, and would that be okay? Yeah, they can connect with me there. I've actually posted a bunch of um, presentations that I've been asked to do just over the past three months because of COVID that I've never done before. They're in my featured section. People might enjoy seeing my thoughts on zero-based budgeting or seeing, um, you know, this interview might go up there. It's just like just opening people's minds on how to think about strategic crisis leadership. I've I posted that and it's gotten a lot of good views. So yeah, go check out my LinkedIn, my profile. Go check out some of those Brezos and let's have more conversations about it. Fantastic. Thank you once again for joining us. Thanks everybody for uh, joining us today and uh, have a great rest of the day. Bye. Thanks, sir.